0: Always honest, often blunt, never afraid, this is The Narrative. We're breaking away from the script to reveal the driving forces behind the most important and divisive issues facing our culture today. I'm Center for Christian Virtue President Aaron Baer, and my co-host is our policy director, David Mahan. In this episode of The Narrative, we're talking about critical race theory with Ian Rowe. But first, let's talk about what's going on this week. You know, uh, David, really, the, the thing that's that's front of my mind right now in many ways uh, here in Ohio, but it's something that, again, uh, Ohio being a microcosm for uh, for the nation is something that uh, we actually got into our state budget. So right now in Ohio, our, our General Assembly is working on our state budget. Uh, and a, an amendment got in there uh, to protect the medical rights of conscience, uh, conscience of doctors. Um, and and you know, I know for a lot of folks, if you're not a medical provider, you're saying, what's the big deal? Um, but this is something that we've seen really as a national issue um, and, and something that, that, that is becoming more and more really, especially in the medical field. Uh, pressing on on folks which is uh, can they be forced to perform a procedure uh, that violates their conscience and I mean David you could
1: probably think of a few places where a protection like this would come into play absolutely I mean you know we are hearing so much about the transgender issue right now we're, we're hearing about you know abortion um, especially with the transgender piece there's no longitudinal studies out there that says that this thing makes sense especially not for children you know, we've got six gender clinics in the state of Ohio where we're actively pumping hormones into children. If I was a physician, I would have a problem with that. Um, there's no science to to even say if this is a healthy thing, let alone whether it's good or bad. Right. So, yeah, I definitely see where the Med Act would be a big deal here. I I, I don't know. It seemed to me like be a heavy lift. I well, mean. I, well, no, for sure. And, and the thing about the
0: reason why it's crazy that it's a heavy lift to me, David, because it, there's a part of it that's just so common sense of like you should not be able to require a doctor to do something that they have an ethical belief against. I mean, you, you put you take this out of the, cons, the 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 sort of the constructs of social conservatives or culture war issues, and you know there, there's been experimental procedures uh, in the field of medicine for genera- as long as medicine's been around, right, right? right? And and the idea that someone says, hey, I want you to do this procedure to me. Uh, you know, you you saw this very clearly during uh, the when the pandemic was raging, where you had folks saying, "Hey, I want to have hydroxychloroquine to uh, treat my COVID," and some doctors were saying, "Hey, look, I haven't studied this yet. Right. I don't feel comfortable prescribing this ethically for my my own conscience. I can't give this to you." And the market worked the way it was it's supposed to. That doc that that patient went someplace else and got it. Why is that same principle not allowed in? Uh, in these in the abortion context, gender
1: context
0: and, and it's something that medical professionals want,
1: you know right and it, and it doesn't necessarily say that if a doctor doesn't have a problem with that procedure, they can't do it right. Uh, it's just talking about those that that do have a conscience issue with it.
0: Yeah and, and, and again that, that's one of the things that you know the, the, the media has picked up on this the the, the LGBT groups here in, in Ohio mm-hmm. uh, but but again, nationally we're seeing this all over the place. Um, where where they're they're trying to say we're, we're creating a right to discriminate against people and and you know we always turn back to it it's just like the the Jack Phillips case uh, where you know Jack served countless LGBT people he still serves he hires LGBT people he doesn't care right uh, he doesn't want to be forced to communicate a message that violates his beliefs and that's the same thing with with what we're doing here with again we keep calling this thing the Med Act it's the Medical Ethics and Diversity Act and it's a a budget amendment in Ohio but again there's I know a number of states are looking at similar uh, provisions. Uh, the 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 basic idea is saying, look, this doesn't create any affirmative right to be able to discriminate against any individual. Uh, but what it does say is that the individual, a doctor, can say, I don't want to perform a certain procedure. Uh, so it's f- focused on the procedure, not the person. Um, well, David, th- this this moves us to uh, uh, you know, segues pretty well because we're we're talking about the transgender issue um, that again shows uh, how contentious this thing is. Uh, with a- another story coming out of the Olympics, you want to tee this one up,
1: uh, David? Uh, you've got um, Laurel Hubbard. Um, was it Galvin? Gavin, formerly formerly yeah. Gavin Hubbard, yeah. but now Laurel Hubbard. So at, at age thirty five, he transitions, uh, if that's if that's possible. Um, now um, he's a powerlift champion, um, and uh, he's going to be one of uh, our Olympians uh, in in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. So um, it's interesting. This week we actually have Beth Stelzer uh, of Save Women's Sports. She'll actually be here. Um, She is an amateur power lifter and speaks to this pretty uh, directly. And I'm sure we'll hear um, how she feels about it. Uh, But, you know, this is an issue of fairness. You know, there's a reason why we have men's sports. There's a reason why we have uh, women's sports. And the fact now that after Title IX and decades of understanding this issue, now we don't understand this issue, that it's necessary to create fairness is necessary to have separate sports for males and females just to see uh this this power lifter standing next to other women on the podium just completely blowing them out of the water it's it's just crazy yeah well and and, and again like
0: this was an individual that had competed in in the male division uh rightfully uh, for a number of years never never reached a stage never never got uh, anywhere there I, and I don't know what their story their, their 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 full personal story is, but after competing for years and years uh, against male athletes and never winning, now they jump over to the female category and they make the olympic team that's right um and, and and you know the 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 way that again especially for the left that that celebrates how much they love science and how much you know they worship at the altar of science and let's respect the science. Uh, you know the 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 basic realities that uh, of of uh, the 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 male advantage over women in, in athletics is clear, and and, and yeah. you're seeing this even here. And w- one of the things that really got me about this is again I I saw a story on this in in one sort of sort of a uh, you know, legacy media mainstream media uh, outlet, and they were talking about how oh well you know we ensure that there the that the, this policy from the Olympic Committee um, ensures that. Uh, testosterone levels uh, have to be, be below a certain uh, point for for the the transgender individual, for the male, to be able to compete in women's sports. But even at the level they set it, uh, you know, they, they, they set it at what the, I think the term they use is 10 nanomoles, I don't know what that means, <laughs> um, uh, per liter of testosterone for at least 12 months prior to, to the first competition. That's, that's sort of the level that the testosterone has to get under uh, in order for them to compete. But even at that level... Uh, that's still five times greater than than a biological woman. Yeah. So so there is no amount of estrogen they can get pumped into them. Um, those types yeah. of things. And again, it's not even testosterone. Isn't even the only thing that that no. creates the advantage. Muscle structure, bone density. I mean, you know, if
1: yeah. if you if you've already gone through puberty, this is the science that we have. If you've already gone through puberty. you Have all of the benefits of a male body, even if you transition. Um, you've got you've got bone structure, bigger heart, uh, more red blood cells, smaller pelvis and that, you know, which is a big deal, you know, for our cyclers and things muscle mass. Um, it is completely un- unfair and unequal. And one one of the things that, um, um, that that we're hearing a lot of is male and female bodies play sports, gender identities don't. And so th- this is a clash of pop culture and science and pop culture is winning. And I don't understand how. Uh, especially when we're when we're dealing with you know the Olympics, right? No, well, and,
0: and that was the, the the thing to me that you got this, and I, I, you know, and one day we'll actually get uh, David to catch up with the times and get on Twitter. Uh, but I had uh, uh, tweeted tweeted this out uh, oh, earlier. <laughs> it's ac- it's actually probably better for your own mental health not, not to be on there. But I, I had tweeted this out about how you know the the. The the sad start of this story that everyone's celebrating, uh, you know, that the, the Gavin's getting to compete in the women's sports. Um, but the sad side of this, though, is that somewhere, uh, and this is on the New Zealand team, somewhere in New Zealand, uh, there is a woman who has trained her entire life. Several, yeah, several women mm-hmm. who have trained their entire lives, who have, who have, uh, you know, really. Again, you you don't get to this level of com- competition without. Having dedicated everything to it, you know that this isn't something that you just do on the side, right. uh, and has had an opportunity robbed away from her uh, because a man wants to c- compete in her sports. Yeah, you've you've got higher
1: ranked women. Yeah, that don't get to go to Tokyo, so mm-hmm. he could go. So, yeah, it's it's, it's much deeper.
0: Yeah. Well, l- last story I want to
1: cover here is
0: is uh, it's it's not so much as, as breaking news anymore because the 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 date has passed. Um, but it's it's Juneteenth. I, I just wanted to talk about Juneteenth for a moment. You know, the the President Biden had put out a um uh, a statement on it, uh, proclaiming Juneteenth the federal holiday. And you know, it, it's one of these things. I, I will I will even you know confess, repent is is probably the better word that when when this first happened, when this first came out. Um, you know. I got so frustrated with with President Biden, with with the left, with the media, because, you know, again, it was it was trying to force, a, a, a again, the the ongoing racial narrative, racial uh, division that we have in our country right now. But I felt I felt convicted, especially this weekend, uh, reading through things and, and honestly praying through things about, you know, at, at the end of the day. We we should just be able to celebrate and say this is a this is a good thing that we've made Juneteenth a federal holiday again. For those of you who haven't seen it, it's sort of the the celebration of uh, really the last slaves following the Emancipation Proclamation it took about two years uh, for uh, for for the the news the the law to reach Texas, uh, and so this is a, a a celebration of that day when. Uh, the slaves were freed in texas sort of the last slave holding state
1: yeah it was it was the
0: effective the effective yeah, exact date of the emancipation right yeah. and and but i i just felt i felt convicted of it which is i was doing the same thing that i get frustrated the left doing which is looking at every story in ter- terms of terms of score uh, points on the scoreboard mm-hmm. And so, you know, even in Biden's declaration, he was very clearly trying to stick it to conservatives, to Christians, to any, any, you know, anybody that's his political opponent uh, on this thing. And so, because of that, you know, there's that impulse of saying, "Well, I don't want to let them get a point on the board without me getting a point on the board." And I, I feel like that's just we have to just engage better than that, and and not be afraid to to celebrate things that the left does even if it you know even if
1: they're broken nine times out of ten every now and again they can't do a right thing you know yeah and you know the point thing is is, is nuts but I, for me um, you know am I mad that that this is a national holiday absolutely not um, I, I am you know kind of salty that you know the ones controlling the mic are so divisive and so it's not just going to be about Juneteenth um, all of these things that are labeled to help black and brown people rarely ever help black and brown people and so you know on paper yeah it's a, it's a big win this is awesome um but how will it also be used and and again another issue i have is you know why is it that biden the biden administration is the one that finally pushed this thing you know texas has been celebrating you know juneteenth uh as a state for for decades you know why is it two years something like that yeah, yeah why is it just now uh that that um, we, we're finally seeing this as a holiday, and, and so one of them, I'm just concerned, Aaron, with who we allow to label us, who we allow to mm. control the narratives, and I feel like we could do a better job. Um, conservatives could do a better job in addressing some of these issues uh, overtly than we do. Yeah, you know, one of the things we had a, a guest speaker that came on last week. Uh, you know, Woodson. He said, you know, a lot of times to the left, black people are looked as as, as victims. You know, but to the right. They're looked at as aliens. And I feel like we could do a little better job, you know, addressing some of these needs uh, from the right side. And it's time to take a quick break here, but don't go anywhere. Stay tuned to hear from today's special guest,
0: Ian Rowe, about critical race theory right after this.
2: Center for Christian Virtue seeks the good of our neighbors by advocating for public policy that reflects the truth of the gospel. We empower people like you to have a voice in the culture on the most important political and cultural issues of the day. Through our Public Policy Advocacy, Grassroots Activism, Church Ambassador Network, Ohio Christian Education Network, and Christian Business Partnership, there are countless ways for you to get involved. Join the movement today by visiting ccv.org or by clicking the link in the show notes. That's ccv.org and click Join the Network.
0: Stories are a way we relate to one another. It's hard to underestimate their importance. Wessler Media is here to help you preserve those stories that you hold dear. We'll produce a personal podcast an audio scrapbook that will preserve those memories for generations to come. Get in touch today. Call toll-free or text one 38 story one 38 story or visit
1: wesslermedia.com. That's W-E-S-S-L-E-R-Media.com. And we're back on the narrative. We're so grateful to be here today with Ian Rowe to talk about critical race theory. Ian Rowe is a social entrepreneur with more than 30 years of experience founding and leading organizations in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors that empower young people to effect positive change in their own lives. Mr. Rowe is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, serves as a senior visiting fellow at the Woodson Center, is a writer for the 1776 Unites campaign, and is co founder of the National Summer School Initiative. Mr. Rowe is also the former director of strategy and performance measurement at the USA Freedom Corps in the White House, overseeing domestic volunteering efforts in the aftermath of 9-11. Uh, Mr. Rowe, it's such a blessing and pleasure to have you here. I've been following your work. I uh, uh, would love to, to sit down and break bread with you in person <laughs> one day. But uh, if you would, just kind of, you know, from your own words, you know, I know you, you actually run some schools. Uh, in New York, um, you know, give us a breakdown of what you're doing right now.
2: Well, first of all, gentlemen, it is uh, such a great honor uh, to be here to join you. I'm exhausted just listening to my own background. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, no, it's very special, this opportunity. So thank you. And uh, uh, yes, I have the incredible privilege to run schools. Uh, one of the one of the exciting things that I do is I, I help to shape the future for the next generation. Um it's an inherently optimistic uh, enterprise. And so, for the last 10 years, I was the leader of a network of public charter schools in the heart of the South Bronx and the Lower East Side of Manhattan, uh, elementary schools. So, we started pre K all the way through middle school, so pre K through eighth grade. And uh, our kids, you know, primarily from low income backgrounds, primarily Black and Hispanic kids, we had more than 2,000. Uh, students in our schools, we had more than 5,000 on our waitlist. Wow. That was always um, a bittersweet when we had each year when uh, parents entered the lottery and we did the random lottery and so we could call parents and say, yes, you've got the golden ticket you've gotten in and then have the bittersweet uh, communication to say that the best we could do is put your child on an excruciatingly long waitlist. And so we very much know the value of what it means to get a great education. I, myself, am a product of New York City public schools, uh, kindergarten through 12th grade. And our, and our parents, uh, they entered the lottery because they wanted their kids to have a shot at the American dream. You know, they, they may have faced a whole host of challenges in their own lives. They may have faced discrimination on, on many fronts but they knew that with a great education, high expectations that their kids could do amazing things in this country, even uh, acknowledging the structural barriers. Um, And so it's why this whole conversation around race, critical race theory is so important right now because our kids need to understand that there is a pathway, there are multiple pathways for their success. And the key is that we as the adults ensure that they don't have this worldview that's so defeatist but that they know that their pathways in their control, that they can become agents of their own
0: uplift. Amen, amen. Well, Ian, I, I'd, I'd like, I mean, you, you covered so much there. I, I kinda wanna start real high level and then work our way down uh, into you know, maybe the classroom. So start real, real high level about structural issues with, with school choice and education, and then work our way into the, the, the critical race theory aspect of this and of what's happening in, in classrooms. Um, but but you just touched on something there. School choice is something we work on every day. It's we, you know, one of our most important issues that we work on in Ohio, and, and we've been blessed to have some good school choice victories over the past several years. But a lot of times, the the stereotype of school choice, I think, for a lot of folks, when they think of it, they think of you know the re, the, the the Columbus Academies, if you will, here in Columbus, the really you know upper class private schools and and uh, the, the the schools that are unaccept- you know tens of thousands of dollars to get in, but but that's not the modern school choice movement we've seen, right? I mean, that, that's not what our experience—you know, Ed Choice yeah. is in, in Ohio. Our, our our scholarship, our voucher program—you uh, know, a lot of these schools are predominantly minority schools that that accept Ed Choice. Yeah. That kids are benefiting from the voucher. Um, what what is the the reality around vouchers, especially or just school choice generally, uh, whether it's charter schools or private schools, when it comes to uh, sort of uh, race inequalities or 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 just yep. income inequalities as well? Yeah. So it's
2: a great question. I mean, we for the moment, let's take the word school choice out of a policy context and just, just the word school choice. And the truth is school choice has existed for generations, especially if you're in the middle or upper class, right? Because you, if you have children and you're in the middle or upper class, you can generally do a few things. You can uh enroll your child in a great private school and pay tuition you can move to the suburbs where you have great tuition free public schools but they're almost as good as private schools you can go to a religious school Um, so you have a lot of options and every um uh, parent should be able to choose an incredibly high quality school for their child but for some reason when it comes to school choice from a policy perspective there are people who are very upset with the idea that low-income kids should be able to have those same kinds of choices. So that's where we do run into uh, vouchers, charter schools as options for uh, low-income kids to have. I mean, in the, in the network of schools I led, and, and, I'm, and I'll talk about it later, I'm, I'm launching a new network of international baccalaureate at high schools in the Bronx, But here's a district in District 8 in the South Bronx in 2015, uh, of the kids that started ninth grade in 2015, four years later, only 2% graduated from high school ready for college. Meaning that they started ninth grade and either dropped out or they actually did get their high school diploma but still couldn't do math or reading without remediation if they went to college. I don't know which is worse. Like they started and dropped out or they actually finished, met the requirements and still couldn't do college level work. And so if you're in that neighborhood and there's the high school, you have no choice but to go to that high school because in New York City, there isn't a voucher program. Right now there's a cap on the number of charters. So this is a very real structural barrier. You know, oftentimes we talk about systemic discrimination, in some ways, this is one, it's not a race-based intervention, but because of where these schools are located, it has a disproportionate negative impact on low income kids of color. So school choice is, is one of the pathways we have to break free if we want to give
0: kids a shot. How many tens of thousands of dollars were spent on those kids' education in the schools that didn't produce the results they were supposed to? I mean that, oh, just, well yeah. right especially in places
2: like New York I mean in New York we're spending north of $20,000 per kid you know in public yeah, yeah. money public yeah. I mean that's a lot of money and right, right, and right. every yeah. and, and yes we have higher salaries and so there is a higher cost of living all of that higher cost of operations but that's still a lot of money yeah, hey, still, and yeah. in Ohio
1: we're spending 22,000 per pupil so uh, in Columbus, in public, Columbus yeah. public schools yeah. so, you yeah. know
2: where does that money go you know, cause it's not, it's, not, it's not yielding the outcomes that we believe that kids yeah. should have. And, you know, when you look at even on a macro level on a national basis, you know, for a long time, we've had a, what I call a multi-decade obsession with closing achievement gaps, both in terms of race and in terms of class. But if you look at the last 20, 30 years, we've made virtually no significant progress in closing the racial achievement gap, nor in raising the bar for everyone. And we have spent a lot of money. So, so, you know, and parents need more options because there are schools that are doing really well. So we have to give more parents the power to choose with their feet.
1: Right. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, everybody's talking about structural barriers. And I know we've spoken in the past about our open enrollment uh, issue here in the state of Ohio, or almost the entire state, we have open enrollment policies, except for these really small uh, areas that happen to be our urban centers, uh, our Clevelands, our Youngstowns, our Columbus, Cincinnati's, that um, have absolutely uh, no open enrollment around those, those, uh, those cities. I sent you that map. It's almost hard to believe, I think, even for you, <laughs> until yeah. you saw that map. Um, but with all of the talk of you know, disparities and, and structural barriers, uh, this education area is one, it gets a pass. Why does this one area get a pass when it comes to, to race and class issues um, in, in America? It's a very good question because oftentimes the people who are advocating,
2: who are saying that they're advocating for the interests of low-income kids, kids of color are often the very people who are standing in the way of school choice. That's right. Very same kids. So it is a conundrum. It is a conundrum. And, uh, you know, I do think, um, I think teachers unions have to be uh, challenged on this point. I think leaders, even within the Democratic Party, uh, have to be challenged uh, on this point. Uh, You know, what is it that, what is it that is... So antithetical to the idea of giving low income kids of all races, by the way, the same power to choose great schools that middle and upper income kids have. And and by the way, you know, not to put the point of hypocrisy, a lot of the people who Uh are standing in the way of school choice for low income kids, they are exercising school choice in their own personal Uh lives. Uh Right. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And and, you know, that that's when, you know, it's just it's wrong. Right. It's wrong. Well,
0: I I mean, you know, it's one of the and and we should say uh, the the report in Ohio, at least, that showed, you know, that this disparities in open enrollment policy came out from Fordham Institute, which I believe you also. I'm I'm, I'm a board member of Fordham. uh, Yes. Full disclosure. Yes. yes. Yeah. To to throw on that uh, on that bio there. But uh, (laughs) but 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 one of the things that really got me when I was looking at the, the map. Uh, was how you know the, the schools that are blocking open enrollment. So it's all the suburban schools around you know the the urban centers that are blocking open enrollment. that says you can't enroll here. Yeah. Uh, so a kid a kid in the suburbs could you know open enroll into Cleveland Public if they wanted, but a kid in Cleveland Public could not open enroll into the public. Yep, I understand. Nearby, I understand. and so. But what's funny to me about that is this now kind of zeroes in more and more on this critical race theory conversation. Uh, The the parents that we are hearing the most from about critical race theory being taught is from the suburban parents. And so these schools are teaching, you know, this this idea of systematic racism uh, and and pushing this in everything that they they teach in the classroom. Um, But their own policies are actually, you know, creating racial disparities uh blocking kids from the inner cities from coming out to their their districts again it's just more of that hypocrisy we're talking about
2: i i agree i agree and you know look everyone should have school choice at the end of the day on a very practical matter though the truth is i don't want kids in cleveland to have to feel that they've now got to go to I don't know what's a what's a borough, shaker heights. I don't, yeah. I don't know how. There you go. I, I Yeah, that'll work. Yeah. But I don't. I don't.
0: Lakewood. They yeah. Should,
2: they shouldn't have to go that far. They should have a great school within their own neighborhood. So we should be working on school choice, which is empowering parents to be able to choose a great school for their child, whatever is geographically um, appropriate and available, and strengthening the schools in your neighborhood, That's so awesome. that. You don't have to, you know, I mean, the whole idea of busing or having to schlep an hour or two to the school <laughs> every day, that's also not attractive, but believe me, parents will do it. I mean, I, again, in New York City, I went to um, Brooklyn Tech High School, so I was commuting almost two hours each way, um, each day um, to have access to, in that case, it was a specialized high school. So parents will do it. But the best thing is that you have a great neighborhood school um, that you think will allow your child to fulfill it that you know fulfill
0: their potential at the highest level. Or maybe we can get that church on the quarter to start a school as well, which is what we're we're working on over here right now. You know what
2: let a thousand flowers bloom and then let yep. parents
0: decide. Yep. No, amen. That's right. Amen. So let us let's, let's start zeroing in though, especially getting getting into this uh op-ed that that uh that that you had published last week um mm-hmm. along uh the lines of of uh sort of racial disparities that we see yep. especially as it uh, as connected to to family structure but but before we go straight to that let, let's let's talk a little bit about you know the the context that a lot of this is happening in 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 the debate around critical race theory so yeah. uh ian could you define in your own words what critical race theory is and and how you're seeing it uh get into education public education today yeah
2: so it's a very good question because every time you talk about critical race theory and someone tries to define it, and then they say, well, here's some of the actions that are happening. Someone else will say, well, that's not critical race theory. So yeah. any, anytime you <laughs> describe some of the negative outcomes, or well, that, well, then you don't know what you're talking about. And so, right. and it's like boxing a shadow. Yeah. You know, it's this thing that just keeps moving because once it's defined, then you have to defend it. And I think the people who are advocating for it, the, the, they, they, to some degree, they gain strength by having it continue to be this amorphous thing that you never have to define. So if there's, every, if there's any negative school-based practice that could be associated with CRT, then they say, well, they're not, that's not CRT. Like, Okay. So, you know, but I, but I do think most people would agree that critical race theory is, it's a theory, right? It's an idea. It's a framework for looking at the world exclusively through the prism of race. And rather than me say, you know, what do I think? I literally, you know, there's a book called Critical Race Theory, An Introduction. It's written by Richard Delgado. And I, you know, for people who are into this, I think actually we should read it because it's very clear. This is what they say is the definition of critical race theory. Quote, unlike traditional civil rights, which embraces incrementalism and step-by-step progress, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, that's equality under the law, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and neutral principles of constitutional law, end quote. So this is, this, this is the formal definition of critical race theory. It questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory and neutral principles of constitutional law. So think about what that means. The American experiment is, is founded on the essential idea of equality of opportunity. Critical race theory questions the very foundations of equality theory It is antithetical to what these founding principles are, right? Critical race theory questions the very foundations of the neutral principles of constitutional law. Think about that. We have a constitution which says one should not be discriminated against nor have preferential treatment based on immutable characteristics like race. It is neutral. So, So it's very important that we define what critical race theory is. And I and I try not to sort of theorize my own opinion. I want to go back to original documents from the people who define it. That is the definition. And so for me, let's have a robust discussion. You know, to me, you know, this this is these are kind of sophisticated concepts. Right. I'm you know, I was I was an engineering student at Cornell and one of the classes we had to take way back when was theoretical and applied mechanics right and it was a beast of a class <laughs> but in in the theory part of the class um, you did we did all sorts of mathematical modeling research you know trying to figure out how to solve a variety of real world problems like we used the, the version of excel spreadsheets you know years ago and so you simulated a lot of different factors to come up with a hypothesis that's theoretical. But the, uh, the applied component of the class was when you actually had to go out into the real world and test the ideas. And suddenly, you're like, oh, wait a minute, there were things in the model that I thought I didn't even, th- th- they're not taken into account. So critical race theory, the theory, look, let a thousand flowers bloom. Put, the- put critical race theory up against equality of opportunity. Let's have that debate. I don't think that debate should happen in K to 12, have that happen in, acad- in, in college, in graduate school, and have that there. I think what people are now responding to, though, is the application right. of what is typically associated with critical race theory in schools right. on a day-to-day basis. So when you see things like uh, a privilege walk, where you know a line, kids are lined up horizontally, a racially mixed group of kids. And then someone at the head of the room says, well, if you're white, take three steps forward. If you're black, take five steps backward. Wait, what? <laughs> Wait, what? Wait, you're saying because of my skin color, you want me to go to the back line? Wait, didn't we already deal with this? Like 50, 60 years ago? So I think what people are responding to is now, what are the actions? What are the, what's the oxygen that critical race theory depends upon? And that's where I think you're going to see a, a, a privilege walk where you're telling the black kids to go to the back of the line. Well, that's a violation of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, right? So that's where I think we're going. But as a theory, we shouldn't ban it. We should, we should expose it. Right. We, should, we should amplify the definition so people know exactly what it is.
1: That's right. What, what I find just talking, you know, on a street level, um, grassroots level with, with folks is, you know, certain communities are like, well, you know, we do have disparities. You know, there, there are differences in, um, in the schools in the inner city versus the schools in the suburbs. There are differences in opportunities that are granted school, you know, children who live and, and, and go to school in the suburbs versus the inner cities. Uh, and then there there's on the other side, there's, well, why? what are the differences why are the differences i think that critical race theory posits that all of these disparities are due to some sort of systemic racism uh so so it's not to say that there aren't disparities it's not to say that equality is not important it's just you know equalities of opportunity versus outcomes like yes. do you agree I, I absolutely i mean Ibrahim Kendi has said it he says
2: as an ant quote as an anti racist when I see racial disparities, I see racism, period, end quote. So it's, just yeah. like, it's just, okay, uh, as if there's <laughs> nothing else in the world. And so this is where I think um, critical race theory, it, it becomes a huge distraction because what it offers is what I view as a, a monocausal view of the world, that real disparities exist. Absolutely. We need to all get into why those do why those do exist but a critical race theory says the only lens is race so it Sorry. must be structural racism and thus there must be only racist race based interventions that's right so that's why you see reparations as the answer or implicit bias because it because obviously the teachers must be racist right so so now we got to drive the racism out of them as opposed to well what are all the other factors for why for example in the entire history of the nation's report card, right, uh, the National Assessment for Educational Progress, it's given every two years nationally um, at fourth grade, eighth grade, and twelfth grade. Right. Since 1992, there has never been a situation in which a majority of white students are reading at grade level. In, in the last uh, NAEP assessment, which was 2019, at fourth grade, eighth grade, and twelfth grade, there were nearly 4 million white kids that are not reading at grade level. The number for black kids was about 1.4 million, right? And yes, there are more white kids overall in, in the country, I mean, um, than black kids in the country. But the point is, there are a lot of white kids that are not reading at grade level. It's unlikely that systemic racism is the reason that white kids aren't reading at grade level, right? So is there, is there some overlap? Are there, could there be other factors such as the fact that there isn't school choice in enough communities that, and we'll talk about family, that there's been an explosion in non-marital birth rates over the last four or five decades. So you have more destabilized family structures. You have uh, uh, teachers who aren't effective at the science of, of teaching the science of reading. The point is, race is still a factor but if we d- develop this view of the world that it's only about structural racism, then we ignore all of the other factors that cumulatively at this point are m- likely much more of a significant factor in That's explaining right. why there are disparities.
1: And if I if I could, um, one of the things I love about you is that you, you are a scholar, but you're also a practitioner and you bring both of those worlds together. And I think so many so so much of the air that is is kind of sucked out of the room by critical race theory, BLM, CRT, um, you know, type stuff is that is that they're telling a story. They're they're painting a picture and a narrative that most folks don't know enough of on their own to be able to deny or to confirm. Because of your practitioner side, um, you've got that, but you also have, you know, the historic side. You, you know, you talk a lot about. The Booker T. Washington uh, Rosenwald Schools and 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 you know five thousand schools that were developed over thirty four years, where um, even under Jim Crow and things like that, young black children were thriving. Yes, uh, even with disparities. Yes,
2: right? and, and, and that closing story, those disparities. Yes, I
1: think one of the things that's giving so much air to this is is not just be a limb, but the lack of telling our story well. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, David, Did you just said bit. it.
2: Yeah, I mean, th- this is what's so amazing, you know, and this is why, you know, you and I, we're part of something called 1776 Unites, which was founded by, you know, Bob Woodson and the Woodson Center, you know, a group of primarily Black-led scholars who say, look, we acknowledge that there are racial disparities in this country, but let's be honest and have a full critique of why those factors are happening. And also, let's be honest about our country's past. I mean, one thing about the 1619 project that was produced by the New York Times, it's been discredited in many ways because there are falsehoods and and what it said that the country's true founding is. But one thing it has done, it has identified that there is a yearning for more information about the African-American experience in the United States. Mm. But a full telling, not a cherry-picked negative narrative. So you just mentioned the Rosenwald schools. Many educators don't even know what those are. And here it is in the midst of Jim Crow segregation. I mean, black kids, the, the level of edge, I mean, it was, it, was, uh, it was abominable. And yet Booker T. Washington said, no, no, no. There is greatness in these children. We just need to get the resources to build our own. As Bob Woodson often says, when white people were at their worst, we were at our best right? And he partnered with Julius Rosenwald, who at the time was the CEO of the, uh, Sears Roebuck, the largest retailer. So imagine Walt, you know, you know, Walmart now, then Sears Roebuck. And as you said, they built 5,000 schools exclusively for Black children. And the academic achievements were unbelievable. Here's this incredible story of resiliency in the face of enormous adversity. And yet most kids don't know. So as a practitioner, as someone who runs schools, that's what I want to let our kids know about. Warts and all. They need to know about the Tulsa massacre that's right. and they yeah. need to know about the Tulsa rising that happened afterwards, Yeah, right? They need to know about Jim Crow and they need to know about the Rosenwald schools that, that emerged even in the midst of Jim Crow segregation. And and so again, with critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, they have this fatalistic view of the world. It's almost as if it's, it's almost as if they're trying to convince Black kids that you don't have a shot. The country is just determined to shut you down. And as an educator, I, I that that is antithetical to the very idea for why we run schools.
0: So, so I want to drill down on that a little bit further there as as, a, as an educator and talk about you know you, you use the, the 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 word framework of CRT and and the the actual negative impact it would have on kids. Yeah, you know, I, I think about this having gotten to serve a little bit and work in homeless ministry and then work in uh, prison, serving prison ministry and with, with addicts. And, you know, one of the things that I I've just seen time and time again, one of the greatest challenges is helping, helping break. Um, I, I think maybe it's just limits. I don't know what the right word is for it, but, but break pre- like preconceived notions that individuals have about themselves mm. uh, that, that that they, you know, folks coming out of, whether they're coming out of prison or they're just coming, they've, they've lived a life of poverty mm-hmm. and they've their entire family has always been living in poverty and, and this cycle. And they just think this is all life is. Well, you know, what, um, and,
2: you know what's interesting about that is that I actually don't think that kids necessarily, in that situation, actually think that. But if the adults around them right, are telling them right. that- that's the problem. Yes. Right. It's yes. the adults, not the kids. The kids have incredible aspirations for what they want to achieve. There's no kid that's just sitting there saying, I guess I'm just gonna fail. You know, I just, right. you know when kids are finding things in the playground and creating new objects and running around, there's an, inqui- there's a, there's an inherent inquisitiveness and curiosity right. around the world. It's the adults who are obsessed with telling you that you're marginalized. You're oppressed. That's right. Right? That's where we need to get the adults thinking differently about the possibility for their own kids. And this is where group identity really starts to play a role. Because just well, it's all black kids, and if you're black, you know, you 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 must have, you know, you must be marginalized. And the thing, you know, what the thing that's so interesting about you know having run schools for the last 10 years. If you don't get to really know each kid in your classroom, you have no idea what is going on in their life. None. You could say, oh, that kid's white. He's privileged and he's he's got it all going on. Meanwhile, at home, his dad is an alcoholic. Who knows what's going on? Or you you say, oh, there's that black kid. Oh my God, he he must be oppressed. Meanwhile, this this kid is, is is, is is in a strong family, even That's right, whether man. he's poor or not, he's got a great vision for his life. And so we make these group assumptions.
1: On, on, on that note, Ian, I, it, and, I, and I'm so glad you bring that up. And I want to hear some of the successes of your schools. You know, again, as a practitioner, uh, my wife and I, you know, we're teen parents, you know, many know our story, uh, raised our kids up uh, in the inner city rough community off of Livingston Avenue in Columbus, I had to homeschool, because the schools were failing, the, you know, the, the city schools that, that we're talking about right now. They were failing, been failing for decades. Failed my uncle, failed my father, and they weren't about to fail our kids. So I worked several jobs. My wife homeschooled them from the inner city kitchen table, right? Those kids never knew they were deprived. They never knew they were disadvantaged. They uh, had two adults and, and a family of adults that told them they could be anything they wanted to be. And by the time they went to high school from a homeschool uh, inner city table, they were all three to five percent of their class uh, doing well now, college degree, everything else. And so what are some of the um, successes of your particular schools there in New York? Yeah. So, well, I mean, David, you just I mean, we, we got to just linger for
2: a moment, though, on what you created, because a choice. You decided that, you know, you saw what was in front of you, what the government was providing for you. You said no. And you had the wherewithal, you and your wife to say we can create a homeschool environment. That's powerful. And again, every parent should have the right to do that. Not every parent can figure out how to homeschool. So there should at least be another school option. So that's, that's the awesome. first thing. Second, you and, you and your wife were married and you were committed to your kids. And there's nothing like having two parents who were ferociously committed to their kids. <laughs> and I just uh, last week put out a research study right on you know right on the eve of Father's Day which just looked at the data about what is the impact on kids of any race, if they're raised by a single parent versus raised by a married two-parent household. Mm -hmm. And we looked at three dimensions, college graduation rates, likelihood of poverty and incarceration rates across all three dimensions, a single, uh, a kid raised in a married two-parent household did better on all three of those levels versus a single parent. And we're not saying this to demonize Single right. parents, believe me, I know many, many, many single parents who have been successful with their children. I also know kids of married two-parent households that have not been successful, but the data is overwhelming that the odds for the kids in married two-parent households is much greater. And ironically, a Black kid raised in a married two-parent household yep. is much less likely to go to prison than a white kid in a single-parent household. That's right. So again, what that indicates is that while race does matter, because we're not saying it doesn't matter, but while it does, there are other factors that cumulatively have a much more forceful impact yeah. than race. And, you know, yeah. And so we want to, so in our schools, we want to let kids know that. So I'm launching a new network of international Baccarat high schools in the Bronx, starting in 2022, it's gonna be called Vertex Partnership Academies. And it's gonna be based on the principles of equality of opportunity, individual dignity, and common humanity. And amongst other things, it'll be an international Bacriette model with a careers, uh, a, um, uh, a college pathway, and then also something called a careers pathway where we'll have kids who will be able to have apprenticeships in industry in 11th and 12th grade so they can actually graduate from high school with an industry credential with labor market value in computer science architecture healthcare those are the first three industries so we're doing that and we want to help young people understand the series of life decisions that give them the greatest likelihood of success so that is something called the success sequence so Mm -hmm. this is not prescriptive it's descriptive but for kids of any background They finish their high school degree, full time work of any kind, just so they learn the dignity and discipline of work. And then if they have children, marriage first, Mm -hmm. 97 percent of the time that people have done that, they avoid poverty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, should we deprive that information? Should we should we deprive young people of that information? Should we not tell them that?
1: Opportunity discrimination. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Can I use that? (laughs) I borrowed that myself, so no.
2: (laughs) No, but you're exactly right. And by the way, that information I just said, again, a lot of kids that are growing up in neighborhoods that have a lot of married, two-parent households, they don't necessarily need to learn that explicitly because it's just sort of organic. It's in the culture. But if you're growing up in a community where the non-marital birth rate is near 90%, especially for young parents you're not necessarily seeing the models of your pathway out of that. And when I say pathway out, that doesn't mean I want you to leave your community, but the pathway out of that cycle of poverty. Yeah. And, and we just have to be honest and critical race theory, things like it, limit your
0: ability to see a horizon beyond just your race. Well, Ian, we, we could go on for, for I, I mean, this has been phenomenal. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sure we're actually gonna do another volume uh, down the line. On uh, on education, so we we'd love to have you back. But um, you know, but as we close out here, I guess my my only disappointment about the conversation we've had is I was hoping for a Brooklyn accent in this. Where's the Brooklyn accent? <laughs> <laughs> been... Well, you know, I was born in London. Oh gosh! Oh. So I, so I've got all sorts of craziness. Inside. You got it coming from all sides. <laughs> well, uh, but but anything else for for people that want to get connected with your work, maybe support your schools, anything like that? What how can they get connected with you?
2: Well, I mean the first and foremost support your own kids in your own school. Seriously. I mean, I mean certainly I would love our support of our schools, but I think what we're I think what most parents are realizing, especially after COVID, you have to be involved in your kids' education. When COVID hit, I think a lot of parents got a lot more visibility into what their kids were learning every day, mm-hmm. and frankly they weren't that happy with what they saw. And, and so if that means attending your school board meetings, running for school board, I mean, I just ran for school board in my hometown and I won, thankfully, because there are issues that I want to address here in my own hometown. Congratulations. And so, yeah, well, thank you. But you know, I, want, I want those congratulations to go to you and all of your viewers because the quality of your education is directly related to your, your involvement in your kids' education. And, and by the way, even if that means you've got to go to the school that's been, you know, failing for generations, you know, we got to make those schools better too. And, and parents, and I know everyone's got, you're like, oh, Ian, you're asking me to do even more. And it's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> I mean, because your kid's education, it's everything. Like your family's the anchor, you know, if you've got a faith commitment, that's a beautiful thing. And then comes your kids' education. And so I I would love for folks to support me and our schools, Vertex Partnership Academies, but the most important thing is to support your own kids' education. Bring books into your own home. Read to your kids on an ongoing basis. Turn off the TV. Remove those devices, um, those electronic devices, You know, love your kids, have dinner with them every night. Those are the things. Those are the things. If we want to, uh, you know, turn our country to have it fulfill all the possibilities we know we can achieve together.
1: Well, family, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Narrative presented by CCV and produced by Wessler Media. We're so grateful for the opportunity to discuss critical race theory with our guest Ian Rowe. If you enjoyed breaking through the false narratives and political spin today, don't forget to subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We're your hosts, Aaron Baer and David Mahan, and we can't wait to see you next time right here on The Narrative.